Well, the book of Daniel is essentially about a believer who is trying to figure out how to relate to the secular culture. So Daniel is in exile from Judah. Remember that he was taken from Jerusalem as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, raised the city. And so they took the brightest people into Babylon. And now Daniel serves in the government of this new empire. And so he needs to figure out, how do I relate to this new, idolatrous, pluralistic culture that is coincidentally much like ours today? So how do I, as a Christian, relate to that? That's a question that we're we're posing throughout this series. And we've learned so far that we are to be involved in the culture. We're not to isolate ourselves. We're not to leave this world and this culture, but we are to go into it and make a difference and be influential and be successful in the structures of this culture like Daniel was. And yet, we are to remain distinct. We are to keep our faith. We are to remain faithful to our God, which will inevitably get us into some trouble with the empire. Daniel interprets dreams of kings, and thus he's able to speak from God himself what God thinks of the culture, what God thinks reality is. He gets to do that. He exposes the pride and the feasting of the kings and points to the one true king of heaven. So that's so far what we've learned. Now today, let's look at this story from Daniel 6. I'm going to I'm not going to read the whole chapter, so I'll set it up a little bit and then we'll read the second half of the chapter together. So Daniel is still very much an influential person, even though there's a new king. A Medo-Persian empire took over Babylon, a new king comes in, but the king realizes that Daniel is so effective and he is so loyal to whatever king is on the throne that he better keep him on. And so Daniel, in fact, gets even promoted even more. And so now Daniel is one of the top officials of the empire. There's other people who don't like him. Other officials seem to think that he should be able to bend the rules a little bit to help them enrich themselves. He refuses to do that. He is very loyal to the king, very effective and skilled administrator. People don't like that, so they decide to trap him. And what they do is they manipulate the king into passing an edict, a law, that says that for 30 days, everybody needs to stop praying to their gods and only pray to the king. Now, this is a political thing. I don't want you to think it's a religious thing. Uh, The king of Babylon still thinks it's okay to pray to whatever god you want. But for the 30 days, you should only pray to the king to unite the empire, to bring this political unity. And so, of course, Daniel refuses to do that. His opponents know that he would, and thus he would be thrown into the den of lions. So let's pick up the story at Daniel 6, verse, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. 
And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be, never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Well, that is our story. Well, if you are like me, perhaps the first question that comes up is why such a bad thing happened to such a good person like Daniel. He's an innocent person. He's unjustly accused. He's done nothing wrong. He served his, his king well. Um, and yet, he's thrown into the den of lions. How can it be that a godly person, a faithful person, a good person like Daniel would be sent such a trial. Now, some of you may be looking at your lives today and are wondering the same thing. Why is it that I'm, I'm a good person, I, I do what I'm supposed to do, I, I try to honor my God, and, and yet a terrible tragedy happened to me, or a trial came into my life that is very difficult. Why would God allow something like that to happen to me? That's a valid question. And I encourage you to be honest with God as things like that happen to you. So I'm going to answer that question in part today. Now, of course, you know that the subject of suffering is so vast and Scripture speaks so much about it, we're not going to be able to cover it comprehensively. So it is a mystery and remains a mystery in many ways. There are other answers to the question, but I will give you one that I see in this particular text, and it's an important one for us to learn. Here it is. The world learns about Christianity by observing the suffering of Christians. 
The world learns about our faith by observing us as we suffer. So part of the reason why God allows trials into your life is to show others on the outside of the faith, other people, what Christianity is, is like, what it actually is, what your faith is about, who God is and what he's like. Your suffering can have a tremendous effect on others. When you suffer, God speaks to them. Yes, God speaks to you, that's true, but God also speaks to them. Through your trials, and whatever degree of trial you want, you want to take, and not all suffer the same way, you know, some of you maybe have minor inconveniences in life, and some of you may have, may have significant issues you're dealing with, but whatever that, the degree of, of trial and difficulty in your life is, God speaks through that to other people. Suffering for God is a teaching tool for you, but also for others. It may very well be that through the, your suffering, through your particular trial, other people may be brought to God. That may be the very means that he will use to bless somebody and save them. So let's look at what Darius, this pagan idolatrous king, learns about the faith of Daniel, about the religion of Daniel, based on Daniel's handling of his trial. So the king looks and observes Daniel, and what does he learn about Daniel's religion from how Daniel suffers. Now, if you're suffering right now, this will be helpful to you because it will give you a perspective on what's happened to you. If you're not suffering right now, this will explain to you what Christianity is and it will help you understand what Christianity is actually about. So the king learns about three things. He learns about the nature of Daniel's religion. Secondly, he learns about the power of Daniel's religion. And lastly, he learns about the heart of Daniel's religion. So he learns about the nature, the power, and the heart. So what does the king learn? He learns about the nature of, of Daniel's religion. Now, so the edict is passed. Nobody's supposed to pray to any other god except for the king. And what does Daniel do? Daniel goes back to his house, right? Opens the windows towards Jerusalem, falls on his knees, and he thanks God, and he asks God for help. Now, what's really important here to notice is that Daniel's piety, his spiritual disciplines, do not change by this trial. Scripture is very clear. Verse 10 says that he, he does as he had done previously. Daniel's always prayed like that. He'd always pray three times a day with windows open towards Jerusalem, and he would thank God on his knees and, and pray for help. He'd always done that. And when a trial comes, and he knows that that he may very well die that day. It doesn't change his spiritual disciplines. His prayer life is not affected by it. Now, why is it important? It's important to us because the devotional life, your prayers, your attendance of church, your giving, tithing, your service, service of others, is an indicator of where your heart is and what you think your religion is all about. So let me, let me break it down a little bit here. We'll, we'll think a lot about this, this point. What King sees on, on, on the example of Daniel is that his religion is about a relationship with God that is based on grace. Because his piety doesn't change, the king sees that his religion is about a relationship with God that is based on grace. Here's what I mean. In, in, in my line of work, I see lots of people come, come in and out of the church and, uh, and a lot of times what happens is somebody comes in in a time of crisis 
And all of a sudden, they start coming to church, they start reading their Bible, they start praying a lot, they attend all sorts of Bible studies, they start serving, they give their money away, and, and their piety increases. Right? They kick it up a notch in the time of crisis. Now, why are they doing that? Daniel is not doing it. Daniel is not praying four times a day or five times a day now that he is threatened with death. No, he continues to pray like he's always prayed. But for a lot of us, a time of crisis is when we kick it up and we increase our piety. Now, if that happens with you or people you've seen around you, it is probably because we see our religion as essentially a business relationship, essentially a legal contract with our God, so that we do certain things for God, He does certain things for us. There are two parties that have made certain promises, and if one party keeps their promise, the other party will keep their promise as well. So when a trial comes into your life, many of us interpret it as God's displeasure. God is punishing us. Why? We're not doing enough for him. So what is our response if we see our faith in that way? I'm going to do more for him. Of course, I'm going to do more so he would relent and, and start blessing me again. So he would stop punishing me and he would start blessing me again. Because the way I see my religion is essentially a legal contract. It's a business relationship. So a trial is a sign that I'm not doing enough. So I'm going to do more. Now what happens typically in, in a situation like that? When I see somebody come in, especially like somebody has uh, just dealt with their addiction or just got out of prison and they come to church and there's this, this upsurge of, of piety, it dies out. It disappears in, in a matter of weeks or months. Why? Well, the crisis has done, is, is, is done now. God is not punishing them anymore, so they think. So they don't need to maintain this high level of piety. Why? Well, because God isn't doing as much for them either, so it kind of dies out. Do you see, if you see a religion like that, then your piety, your, your spiritual disciplines, will all, always going to be proportionate to what you think God is blessing you or punishing you for. That's how you're going to process your life and the struggles of your life. Now, I think, and I don't know all religions, I don't know all schools of spirituality, but as much as I know, I have not seen the approach that Christianity takes in any other religion. Because all other religions say, I do something for God, God does something for me. I do good, God will bless me. I do bad, God will punish me. In Christianity, we have a relationship with God that is based on grace. Now look at Daniel. This is clear in Daniel's life. His piety doesn't change because he's not in his religion for the benefits of his religion. He's not praying so God would bless him, ultimately. He's praying because he's in a relationship with God and he's talking to God. So, of course, he's going to talk to him when life is good and he's going to keep talking to him when life is hard. It doesn't matter necessarily to the relationship. The relationship is still there. Daniel is not basing uh, God's love on his own performance. Daniel is not saying, well, because I haven't done, done as well lately, God is unhappy with me or God is not pleased with me as he was before, so I'm going to kick it up and do more. No, Daniel, is, he's secure in his relationship with God. He knows that God loves him. He's comfortable with God. He rests in God. He knows that God loves him, and so he serves him not to earn favor from God or to avoid punishment. 
He serves him because he loves him too. It's a relationship. And it's a relationship that is based on grace. Now, let's consider a different circumstance. I see other people in church who when a trial hit, they disappear. So they were pious before, and perhaps they were very consistent with church attendance, they were tithing, they were serving, they were in a home group, and then suffering comes, and they're gone. Now why does that happen? Essentially for the same reason. Because they too have interpreted their religion as a contract, as, a, as, as an exchange of goods and services. And now, when God seems to be not faithful to his agreement, when God is not there to bless them anymore, when suffering comes in and God seems to withdraw his blessings, the response for many of us is, well, why would I continue to do my part? If God breaks this contract, why would I keep doing my part? If God does not fulfill his obligations, why would I fulfill my obligations? If God wants me to read his Bible and go to his church and love his people, then he better bless me. And if he doesn't bless me, why would I do that? There's no other reason for me but to get a blessing from him. Now, do you see how it's the same idea, but it works out differently? Some people do more for God to get more from him. Others stop doing anything from God because they don't think it's worth it, because they think God is, is done with them. Now, that is not the religion of Daniel, and it is not the religion of us. Christianity is based on grace. It's about a relationship, and it's about a relationship with a real person. For Daniel, he will keep praying and talking to God even when he doesn't understand what God is doing. I don't know if Daniel knew that God was going to deliver him. I don't know if Daniel knew what God was exactly doing with this whole lion's thing. But he continued to live just as he had lived before because he had a relationship with the real person. And Daniel knew that if you're relating to a real person, there will be times when you will be surprised by that person, when you will be frustrated with that person, when you will disagree with that person. It works on human level. You know, when, uh, when we do premarital counseling in the church for people who are getting ready to be married, uh, and we have a whole session of communication and resolving conflict and fighting and those kind of things. And so when a couple comes to me and they say, oh, we, we don't fight, you would think I would be encouraged by that, right? And I would say, you guys have a perfect relationship. This is wonderful. You're ready to be married. No. That concerns me. It alarms me. Do you know why? Because I'm thinking they don't have a relationship. They don't know each other. If they're not fighting, they don't know who each other's is. You see? They haven't gotten to know the real person. Now, it's the same in our relationship with God, except God is an infinite person. God's wisdom, Scripture tells us, is unsearchable. Unsearchable, which means that we cannot search out, we cannot figure out his reasoning. Isaiah tells us that his thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are not your ways. So we're dealing with a person who, perfect, right? So not like in a human relationship. There's no sin there to frustrate us. It's a perfect person, but it's a person who is so much bigger than you would imagine him to be that don't you think that maybe, just maybe, there will be times in your relationship with God where you will not understand what he's doing. Don't you think that there will be times when you will be surprised 
at God's action in your life. That God would allow something to happen that you don't like, that you don't understand, and you disagree with. It's not surprising if you understand who God is as much as we can. God is always going to be bigger than you can imagine Him. Whatever you think of God, as much as you've studied, as much as you've thought about or meditated on it, God is always going to be more than that. You you, you can't comprehend Him. So, of course, if you're dealing with an infinite person, there will be times when you will not understand what He's doing, where you will disagree with what He's doing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a London preacher, says, It is a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we are dealing with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the fundamental, the basic principle of, of faith in religion is that we should always be ready for the unexpected because we're dealing with God. God is like that. We, we can't predict what God is going to do. And, and let me be a little bit critical here, okay? If in your relationship with God, He has always acted the way you expected Him to act, if there were no surprises, if there was nothing unexpected, if there was no wrestling in your relationship with God, let me just be very clear, you are not dealing with God. You're dealing with someone else, some other imaginary person. Because God will surprise you. He has to, because he's so different from us. C.S. Lewis said, You will never tame the lions of your life until you let God be the untamed lion in your life. So, the point here is that with trials of your life, you can never overcome them unless you understand that God is an untamed lion, that he will do things that are dangerous and risky and violent sometimes, and that's just how he is. Now, he's a good lion, too, going back to Narnia, right? But, but, but he is unsafe, he is untamed. We can't put him in a box and say, God will always do this, and we know exactly what he's going to do. No, you don't know, because you're dealing with God. Daniel knows, he knows. So his prayer life doesn't change because God does something strange or surprising. He expects from God to do that. But he continues to pray the way he had always prayed. On his knees, windows open towards Jerusalem, thanking God and asking God for help. Now let's apply this to our circumstances. When you look at your spiritual disciplines, your church attendance, your tithing, your prayer life, your Bible reading, those kind of things, the religious things of life, right? Do they change in the midst of a trial? When you suffer, do they change? And what does that change, if it happens, tell you about your religion, your understanding of Christianity? Do you think your faith is a relationship with a real person that is based on grace? Not a a business contract but a relationship based on grace. Let me ask you this question. This goes a little deeper. Are you faithful to God even when He appears to be faithless to you? When God doesn't seem to bless you anymore, do you still bless Him? 
the way you answer that question, and, and this is a probing, provocative question, the way you answer that question will tell you what you think the nature of your religion is. If your answer to that question is, when he's not faithful, I don't need to be faithful, you see it as a contract, as an agreement. But if you say, I'm going to bless him even when he doesn't bless me, he gives and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, if that's your mindset, then you understand that it's all by grace. And it's a relationship with the real person. Now, let's look at the second thing that the king learned about the religion of Daniel from watching him suffer. First, he learned the nature of it, which is a relationship. Secondly, he learned the power of it. Now, let me be just obvious here. This is a miraculous thing. Daniel is is delivered out of the den of lions. This is a very exciting thing. God clearly shows his power. There's an angel in there, and and the lions can't even touch Daniel. So this this is a miraculous thing. And the king is obviously very much impressed with that. He writes this edict, writes this degree, and he says, everybody in my empire now needs to worship this God, the God who can rescue and deliver like that. A God who can can shut the the mouths of lions and save one of his servants. So clearly, God's power is on display here. And that impresses the king, and it tells him that this faith that Daniel has is a powerful faith. That God, this living God, is involved in the affairs of his people. And he does these kind of things. Now, Let me say, I absolutely believe it happened. I absolutely believe it happens now. I think God delivers people miraculously today. Um, There there are books written today that document these kind of things. So I'm not questioning any of that. I believe that God is a supernatural God who heals, who, who protects, who delivers today. But I'm also not that naive to think that this is the experience of every Christian. It's not. It's not. Many of you have stories of, of praying for stuff like that and it didn't happen. And for every case of Daniel being delivered from the mouths of lions is, is, are hundreds of cases of Christians who were not delivered from similar circumstances, who were devoured by the lions. There are more martyrs in the history of the church than those who were delivered from the persecution. So what do we do with that? What do we do? Is there still power in our religion even when God does not miraculously deliver us from these kind of circumstances? And my answer is yes. I think there's a power that's available to everybody, regardless of what God does, whether he delivers you or not from a particular trial. And that power lies, as we see in the story, in how that religion affects the heart of the person. And I think the king sees that as much as he sees the supernatural, you know, miraculous salvation in the den of lions, he also sees what's happening in the heart of Daniel throughout this time. Now notice the contrast here. The contrast is, you have the king in the best of circumstances. He goes to the palace, all the pleasures are available to him. Anything he wants, what scripture you know, calls diversions, anything he wants is available to him. And yet, he can't enjoy anything. He can't sleep, he can't eat, he refuses all regular pleasures that they experience, I'm assuming, every night. He refuses all of that. He's troubled, he's upset, and yet he's in the best of circumstances. And his heart isn't peaceful, and it's not joyful. And then you have Daniel, in the worst of circumstances, going into the den of lions, and he seems to be at peace, 
He seems to be okay. I mean, he's not jumping for joy, but he's fine. He's not throwing fits, begging for mercy. He's not trying to justify himself to the king. He does what he's always done. He prays the way he's always prayed. He seems to have a very peaceful night in the den of lions, contrasted with the king's very troubled night in the palace. And I think the king knows that. I think the king sees that. And he sees that there's a power that's available to Daniel that transcends circumstances, that is able to to give a person a kind of peace that is rooted beyond the circumstances, that even these best or worst circumstances can't affect. And so he looks at Daniel, and I'm sure he's wondering, how, why? How can you get this kind of peace? How can you get this kind of joy? Or even if you're being led to, to the death by lions, you're still okay. So what's his secret? Here's his secret. Daniel had his windows open towards Jerusalem. That's his secret. He had his windows open towards Jerusalem. Let me explain. While Daniel lived in Babylon, and like we've said, he's very much engaged with the culture of Babylon, he's successful, he has certain blessings from Babylon, yet he looked toward Jerusalem. He knew that whatever Babylon gave him was temporary and ultimately unreliable. So his heart never attached to Babylon. Like Abraham, Daniel was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Daniel lived his life, though being involved in the culture, still looking outside of his culture towards some other reality. He's looking towards Jerusalem as a symbol of God's presence, as a symbol of God's blessing. And that is where his heart is. That's where his heart attaches to. And so when, when the peace of Babylon is taken away from him, he's essentially okay because he still has the peace of Jerusalem. Why would he open his windows three times a day towards Jerusalem? To remind him that his security, that his meaning, that his identity does not lie with these circumstances, no matter how great or how poor they are. That all of that, his identity, his meaning, his security, his joy, his peace, all of that lies with God himself who comes from Jerusalem. It was a reminder. Maybe you have reminders like that when you pray. Some of you wear a cross. Some of you wear a bracelet. Some of you have a particular thing in your house that reminds you that who you really are, what you're really about, your foundations are not here. They're in Jerusalem. They're in the city of God. They're somewhere where God reigns. And so when trials come, when suffering comes, yes, it's hard, but you're able to go through it because you know that's temporary. None of that is really going to be here tomorrow. It's all stuff that we can go through, but the main reality, the bigger reality, is the presence of God in Jerusalem. Now, that's how Daniel dealt with it. I wonder if that's how we deal with it. I wonder if we are placing our heart in Babylon or are we looking towards Jerusalem? Are your windows open toward Jerusalem? Or are you so tied up in this world, in this culture, in your life, in the circumstances, good or bad, of your life, that that's the reality for you? 
That's what matters. That's what changes your moods. That's what changes how you feel about yourself and how you feel about others. Let me give you one example of a person from church history that experienced this kind of peace. Now, there's many stories. Some of you have very similar stories of experiencing unusual supernatural peace in the times of very difficult trials. Well, there was this one bishop in Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the churches that in Revelation we read about letters to the churches. Smyrna is one of them. Uh, Bishop Polycarp was in Smyrna in the 2nd century. So very early on when the church was heavily persecuted. And he knew that uh, because he was a bishop, inevitably people would come for him. Soldiers would come and arrest him and either throw him to the lions or burn him alive, which was the, the custom of the day. And so he was sort of waiting for them. He could have... He could have fled the city, but he didn't. Uh, he stayed, and finally the soldiers come. And how does he react to that? This is very interesting to read an account of how this man of God reacts to something that he knows is going to bring him death. He offers them a meal. Soldiers come to your house, ready to take you away to kill you. And he makes them something to eat. And he says, while you're eating, let me pray. You know, Nobody's in a hurry here, so... You eat your sandwich, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll go to the arena afterwards. And he prays, and this is how it's described. He prayed, remembering all, high and low, who at any time had come in his way, and the church throughout the world. I'm assuming that's hours of prayer. He spends time on praying for other people. He's not even praying for himself, he's praying for other people. Utterly peaceful. Worried about the well-being of the soldiers who must be hungry. Done a lot of arresting today. Maybe they can use a sandwich. And he's praying for other people. Now how can you explain something like that? Well, listen what happens next. Finally they take him uh, to the arena, but it's too late. The lions have been put away. This is, this is my favorite part of the story, that they couldn't get the lions out because it was too late. So, so they decide to burn him alive. I told the early service, I'm not going to use that in the second service, but it's so funny to me. I don't know if it's to you, but they take him to the arena and the lines are gone. So they say, okay, we have to do something else. We'll burn you alive instead. It's just funny to me, I guess, but okay. So, so they take him to the arena. And of course, as, as they always would do, they try to force him to deny Christ. And they say, listen, this is, this is what's going to happen to you. We're going to burn you alive. So maybe you'd want to deny Christ and then we'll let you go. And this is how he replies. Polycarp says, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no harm. How then can I curse my king that saved me? 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no harm. How then can I curse my king that saved me? Now, the question to us would be, what is he thinking about? Where is his identity at that moment? Where does his joy and peace come from? From Jerusalem. From the reality of God's presence. He says, I've walked with Christ for 86 years as an old man. And he says, God has never failed me. God is so real to me that why would I deny him even when my body is going to get burned? You see, for 86 years, Polycarp had his windows opened towards Jerusalem. And he's cultivated a life that is looking towards God and is able to go through these difficult circumstances because God is real. Because that's where he lives. That's where his heart is, is with God. So what about you? 
Is your joy rooted in circumstances? And so you're happy when your circumstances are good? You're sad when your circumstances are not good? Or is your joy rooted in something deeper? Are your windows open toward Jerusalem? Or are you waiting for Babylon to give you peace? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't think these are empty words. I don't think it's just poetry that that sounds good for the psalmist. I think it's real to him. I think the person who wrote this psalm knows that even if your heart and your flesh fail, if your body is burned alive, God is still my strength. God is still my portion, and it's forever, no matter what happens to me. Does that describe you? Now let's move to the last point of the sermon. The third thing that the king learns is he learns about the heart of Daniel's religion, the nature, the power, and now the heart of his religion. He observes that through one person's suffering, blessings flow to others. Because Daniel suffered, the king was saved. The king benefited from Daniel's suffering. Daniel suffered unjustly, but because of his suffering, innocent suffering, Darius became a worshiper of the true God. Our our chapter ends with this great proclamation of the value of God of Daniel. The king says, now everybody needs to worship this God because look how wonderful he is. Something happened in Darius' heart as he was watching the suffering of Daniel. Now, what happened? He got delivered. He got delivered from his idolatry and the spiritual death that was upon him. As the king is watching this innocent person suffer, he comes to life. So the near death of one has now brought spiritual life to another. Now, you always look at the story, and we all talk about the deliverance of Daniel out of the den of lions, but perhaps the more miraculous deliverance is the deliverance of Darius from the life of idolatry and and power and looking for all these things to fulfill him and yet being totally troubled at night. Something happens in his heart. He becomes a follower of God. So his conversion, at least in part, has to be credited to the innocent suffering of Daniel. Now, it's not just something that happened to Daniel. It happens to us today. Your suffering brings healing and life to others. This is not to plug my wife's book, okay? So please, this is an example. But my wife wrote a book about her experience of having Polly, our third daughter, in in a hospital in Ukraine and and kind of the traumatic birth and and then realizing she had Down syndrome and, and working through all those issues and kind of dealing with the unexpected of life through that. And as she wrote the book, I think one of the main benefits of that book for others is that she's able to verbalize something that other people can't. Lots of people have gone through that experience. But because my wife did, and she's able to put it into words, now other people can heal, and they can process, they can work through those emotions, through the words of my wife. Now, at least in part, I think her suffering is because God meant to use it for others. I think it happens to all of us. 
as a Christian, when you suffer, God is using that for somebody else and using it for their good. And the reason I say always, all the time, is because that's the heart of our faith. Because there was another innocent person, much more innocent than Daniel. There was another person who was conspired against, another person who, again, out of envy, was arrested, was entrapped, condemned to die unfairly, unjustly. And Daniel, who was delivered, you know, he didn't die, but this person, Jesus, did die. There was also a stone that was rolled away to, to seal the mouth of a cave for Jesus so that nothing could be done to him, and yet Jesus rose from the dead. And through his death, through his resurrection, think about all the blessings the world has received, all the blessings you have received from Jesus. The suffering of one has given you salvation. You are delivered precisely because a just and godly and innocent and faithful person suffered, and suffered deeply, suffered fully. That's why you're here. That's why you're accepted with God. That's why you're reconciled to Him. That's why you have peace with God. That's why you can look towards Jerusalem and draw your peace and joy from that. That's why you can have a relationship with God. It is a relationship. Because all the obligations that you should fulfill have been fulfilled by Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. Do you see how that's at the heart of our faith? I think Darius got it. Not to the extent that we do today, because we have the New Testament, we have the, the ultimate story of the suffering of our God. But if you look at the suffering of a Christian, you should be able to see that it's because of the suffering of Jesus that we are delivered and saved. I'm going to finish with this one passage, and then we'll take communion. This is 1 Peter 2. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus went into the den of lions and was devoured, torn to pieces by the justice of God, so that you, when you walk through the trials of your life, you need not bear the weight of God's wrath on you anymore. You can be sure that God is pleased with you, that God blesses you, that God loves you, because Jesus bore your sin.